All right, we're live. Another episode of Monero Talk. Uh, today we're with uh, the folks of Open Bazaar, Brian Hoffman and uh, company. I'll I'll have him introduce uh, the other guys. Sorry, guys. Um, I don't know your name off the top of my head. Um, yeah, and no, I just wanted to bring I wanted to bring Brian on. Uh, I've actually been following Open Bazaar from the very very early days, from before you guys launched. Uh, I've always found it to be uh, a very interesting and uh, vital um, uh, project um, in terms of uh, you know what the crypto community is supposed to be doing. And uh, I wanted to bring Brian on today here. Uh, you know where Open Bazaar is at, where it's headed, and uh, also would love to hear his opinion on Monero because I believe the uh, the incentives really align with these two projects. And uh, want to know why Monero has not yet been uh, implemented on Open Bazaar. So, Brian, if you want to quickly uh, introduce yourself and your team. Yeah, sure. Um, so, over here, if you can see, <laughs> is Mike Greenberg. Uh, he works on uh, pretty much everything on the back end of uh, what Open Bazaar is doing. So, with the wallet, how the how the app works, and stuff behind the scenes. And then here is Stevie, and I'm. Is it Zolo? I don't know. Zolo. 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 Okay. Zolo. It's an Italian surname. Yeah. I, I just, I'm not good at names, period. So I can barely say my own. But um, uh, he, he has come on to help us with uh, cloud infrastructure and uh, doing different things like uh, helping search and wallet infrastructure. So a whole bunch of really important stuff. Perfect. So these are the behind the scenes guys of Open Bazaar. How you doing? Yeah. Thanks for coming on, guys. And uh, thanks for bringing them on. So I guess first basic question uh, for the viewing audience uh, what you know what is open bazaar how would you describe uh, the open bazaar project yeah so open bazaar is uh, it's a truly decentralized marketplace uh, that uses cryptocurrencies as the payment layer and effectively allowing us to reduce uh, remove the middleman uh, from you know like an eBay or an Amazon model and so uh, you know, I think it's probably one of the first real examples of a DAP. I guess we existed, we kind of predated the term DAP. But um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're one, one of the few apps that I think really tries to demonstrate the utility of cryptocurrencies uh, to do something really good for the world. Now, when people hear Open Bazaar, I think, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people kind of instantly think, uh, you know, dark net markets. Um, how is this different? How is this different than the Silk Road? Uh, is it different, or you know, what are, what are the similarities and differences, and uh, how would you describe them? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think so. There's a lot of differences between Silk Road and Open Bazaar. There, obviously, there's some technical differences. For instance, Silk Road was obviously a centralized service. Uh, it was basically just a website that matched up people like eBay does and, and just allowed crypto as the currency and they ran it over Tor to be hidden. Um, so technically it's very different from OpenBazaar, which is actually a peer-to-peer -peer application. Um, so there are no central servers, there's no one person that runs it. Um, so that that's the primary difference on the technical side. Um, from a philosophical side, uh, there is a lot of similarities between what the Silk Road was trying to accomplish and what Open Bazaar is trying to accomplish. Um, a lot of the early writings from 
uh, I guess Ross or whoever you know you believe ran Silk Road or created it um, was this kind of libertarian ideology about free markets and letting the people decide uh, what the rules and regulations of how things operate are, like give it, giving the power back to the people. Uh, only after time did it sort of become bastardized and turned into just a purely drug marketplace for many different reasons. But, um, but in our case, we feel like that ideology is still valuable when you think about marketplaces just broadly. Um, like why, why can't we have instead of Amazon, who's this monolithic, like centralized corporation that just controls all of commerce on the internet for the most part, like why does it have to be owned by Jeff Bezos? Like why can't they be owned by the people of the world and be open and free and uh, you know controlled that way? So that's really kind of the goal here. And cryptocurrencies are just a really, really important uh, component of making that happen. We couldn't really build that unless we had, you know, an, uh, decentralized networks, peer-to-peer -peer networking, uh, cryptocurrencies. Like those are the all those pieces are required in order to build the marketplace without having some kind of centralized control. So how did you how did you get? into you know how did you start this project um I, I assume you started in bitcoin or was it that you were always interested in these open the concept of these open marketplaces and with the invention of bitcoin uh you you kind of saw uh you know a, a way to construct uh an open marketplace that wouldn't you know that would be decentralized was it that you were already into these open, you know, the concept of open marketplaces, or was it that, you know, you were a Bitcoiner and uh, then kind of just saw this need for creating a decentralized marketplace? Well, the way that it happened for me was that, um, you know, I was, I was into Bitcoin early on and then, you know, I worked in encryption and messaging and things like that in my, my daily job. And I was running the Bitcoin meetup in Northern Virginia area and uh, was really looking for something to work on. And actually, another group of folks, uh, the people who were working on Airbits wallet, which is now Edge wallet, as well as Amir Taki, who was driving the dark wallet effort, they did a hackathon and created Dark Market, um, which is the predecessor to Open Bazaar, which I wasn't actually involved with. Um, I, I was just an observer like everybody else. And then they open sourced the code. And when I saw that, I I kind of had this idea of what Open Bazaar, what I was thinking Open Bazaar would become, uh, that I wanted to bring to them, and I wanted to work on with them to expand that idea. And they weren't interested in really moving forward with the project. I think they had other priorities. So um, they kind of just like gave me the keys of the kingdom and said, you know, we'll support whatever you decide to do. So since they weren't going to work on it, and it was just me at the time, I decided to rename it and kind of like start anew with the same idea. So I didn't actually come up with the marketplace idea, um, but it quickly became expanded into what we envision as uh, and what we delivered as Open Bazaar. The initial version of Dark, dark Market really had like very rudimentary uh, functionality and, and we kind of expanded it into this broader marketplace idea, yeah. Yeah, I think your your first good move was kind of rebranding it as an open marketplace versus a dark market. Yeah, the funny part is that like it wasn't. I mean, that wasn't even necessarily like the the main priority. Um, I actually looked at it and I was thinking, you know, 
they had this whole dark branding going on. Like they had dark wallet and then they created dark market and they were looking at some other stuff. And I was just like, well, if they're not even going to be involved with it, it's probably better to just be a separate brand um, so that nobody's confused. And so that's what I did. And then, and then actually I think at the time I was worried, I was like looking at other products like open, open Seuss and other projects like that, like um, open SSH. And I was like, okay, this is like in the open source spirit. And then my wife is actually Iranian, so I thought Bazaar would be <laughs> kind of a clever name for Marketplace. So that's how it kind of it got pieced together. But um, but yeah, it turned out well. Um, a lot of people thought it was kind of uh, like like I was like trying too hard to make it sound legit instead of a dark net, you know? Like, <laughs> you know? But but I, I think it 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 really um, it encompasses the spirit more what we're trying to build rather than uh, a drug marketplace you know no I, I think i think the name i think the name is great i think it really does touch upon uh some of those you know kind of underlying policy reasons you were talking about before about you know why uh you know an open marketplace uh might be something that we would consider you know one of these fundamental rights that humans should have access to could you touch upon that a little bit more? I mean, recently we saw, I don't know if you saw Jerry Bitro of uh, Coin Center um, released a paper um, basically coming out and supporting privacy coins and supporting digital cash in a very strong way. And basically, uh, you know, making the argument that digital cash is something that's ethically good for humanity and essential for preserving open and free societies, uh, especially in the internet age. And do you kind of see uh, open marketplaces similarly, um, you know, fitting fitting into that, uh, in that it's something like digital cash and that uh, something that we need, especially during this internet age, the, you know, the age of the Amazons and things like that. Um, is there, are you seeing uh, it being similar to di the digital cash arguments that are being made? Yeah, um, and, and jump in, guys, if you have any thoughts on this as well. But you know, I, I, um, I have I haven't read Jerry's article. I mean, don't tell Jerry that he'll get mad at me. But um, uh, but I do agree that it's needed. Um, I'm actually good friends with both Zuko and like Ricardo uh, from Monero and. I've always I've talked with them for years about how we could try and do a better job of bringing privacy coins into Open Bazaar. So we did start out for a long time initially being very focused on just Bitcoin. Period. And so there was not even any consideration for for privacy other than um, we had a lot of discussions around stealth addresses and things like that that were very promising early on that Bitcoin could use to be a little bit more private. And then Zcash uh, came along, and we uh, tried to incorporate what well, we did incorporate Zcash into Open Bazaar, um, primarily because their team was really, really willing to work with us. Um, uh, Zuko dedicated some team uh, members to help us out with that. But I will, I will say that we we didn't use shielded addresses, so we were using regular um, uh, transparent addresses to do it. And there's some technical reasons for that. Um, that would probably bore your audience unless they're super technical. But you know, there were some reasons why we haven't implemented that. And so, even though we have Zcash support, we don't really use like the the heavy privacy features. And and as far as Monero is concerned, um, we really needed multi-sig support, which didn't uh, come into Monero until pretty recently. 
And so that wasn't even like on the table as an option, even though we would have liked to. And I, I mean, I've had many conversations with Ricardo about trying to get someone to do that and other people, you know, trying to get someone to come in and look and we just, we haven't really done that. But I do know that we are reviving our efforts to try and get Monero into Open Bazaar. There's, there's a couple devs that are um, working with us to understand better how the wallet works. Uh, I don't know if, if, if you're aware of it, but we did just release a, a new architecture for our wallet. So um, we used to do like separate wallets and you kind of had to choose which coin you supported. Now we have this thing called multi-wallet, which is more of a flexible approach to plugging in new wallets. And um, we added Litecoin. And I think it'd be much easier now to get Monero or some other coins into the app that way. And so hopefully we'll be able to to get that done. I don't know how well it will be executed because I don't know how complicated it is to make uh, a Monero wallet work with OpenBazaar, but it is something that we're starting on. And um, I'm excited that there's people that are uh, willing to contribute and help us uh, do that. I think ideologically speaking, we we want to make our marketplace as coin agnostic as possible and allow the users to decide what aspects of which coins and currencies are important to them and allow them to conduct the trade in the way that they seem, you know, best fit for their for their case and scenario. So this is this multi-wallet release that we just put out with 2.3 uh, was a step towards that. And more generally speaking, making it possible for uh, other coins to be able to participate on the market is, is I personally, I think is important, but, uh, from a technology point of view, this, this should be kind of an open solution and kind of the, the thinking that we, we apply to some of our planning when we decide this coin or that coin or this feature or that feature, like we don't try to be a gatekeeper necessarily. We don't want to be the gatekeeper. Yeah, I mean, one good thing about OpenBazaar in general in terms of privacy, too, is that we're already pretty decentralized. Like, whereas, you know, like if you're dealing with Coinbase, a lot of times there's like, you know, you can track the coins into Coinbase and then, you know, you know, maybe you can figure out how they're coming out. If the blockchain is not super uh, private, you know, it's transparent. In our case, you know, trades are happening independently. So it's almost like two random wallets on the Internet are just conducting business those transactions don't pass through like any servers like where we would be seeing traffic and and even though we don't know who they are we know where the you know what transactions are happening we know, know nothing the people are independently reaching out to each other so th so i think you know adding something like monero or like a you know shielded transactions for zcash would be like the ultimate privacy solution i think for open bazaar users so we would love to get there uh easier said than done <laughs> So is Open Bazaar being used uh, for that use case quite a bit, and actually in terms of just kind of like trading coins? Um, yeah. Coins yeah, so we have, right now we have four types of listings you can put on the marketplace. Um, the fourth one and the newest one is, is cryptocurrency type, which um, basically you can accept any of our four uh, integrated coins uh, as payment for any of the coins that are available on coin market cap generally that's that's usually how we we pull them in so there's over 2,000 coins on coin market cap that have a price and the way it works is like you would say oh, I'll accept you know Litecoin for Dogecoin um, someone would pay you the Bitcoin and then you would 
have to send them the Dogecoin off the marketplace. And once they received it, then the payment would get uh, received. So, so that's how that would work. So we don't really have like native in the marketplace. Like the trade doesn't actually happen in the marketplace. It happens off, off the the market. But the actual purchasing of it happens within Open Bazaar. So hmm. that's kind of the first phase approach that we're taking to that. So almost like a local local Bitcoin, local Monero. Both. Yeah. So yeah, you could kind of think of it like instead of like swapping PayPal or whatever for Bitcoin, you're just swapping an altcoin off the market. Yep. Um, yeah. So in, in terms of adding Monero, I mean, do you guys have any other technical things to add? I mean, is 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 it that Monero needs to do some other things? I know you mentioned, you know, the advent of multisig uh, certainly got us closer. Um, but is is Monero ready to be added to Open Bazaar? Is are there things on on our end that kind of need to be added, or is it really just uh, you guys now figuring out how to add it? Do you want to answer that? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So I've been I've been speaking with some of the Monero devs, and uh, the without getting too technical about it, we require the vendor, the counterparty, if you will, to be available for them to provide a key for us so that we can have this multi-sig transaction occurring. And a lot of our use cases in OpenBazaar, particularly since we launched 2.0, like the end of 2017, um, a, big, a big use case that a lot of the OpenBazaar users were requesting was allowing for offline transactions to work properly. So we had to create a different uh, different way of facilitating that in an offline fashion that doesn't work very well with Monero today. And so we either have to find some way to facilitate this offline scenario in this special case for Monero, or possibly make it so that the software can allow for Monero to work, but only in certain scenarios, like when both the, the buyer and the vendor are online at the same time. So there are a couple of specific use cases where it gets tricky. And generally we want to make all of the use cases work well so that the user experience is consistent and that users are not surprised when they go to pay with Monero and say, oh, well, why can't I use Monero? Like Bitcoin's just fine here. And you know, it, it, it creates a very difficult user experience that we have to try to solve. And that's a technical problem as well as a, a social one because Monero users don't care that the, the vendor is offline. They just care that they wanna make that purchase and when you're coming from an experience like what Amazon or eBay provides, where you have that centralized provider that's handling and facilitating that transaction for you, you have a very high bar that you have to meet before users are willing to make that jump to use the, the experience just to have a little bit of privacy on Monero if that's what their, their interest is. So there's, there's a, I think, a 10x experience that you have to meet per se, before it really works in all of the use cases that we have. All know. right. You did a good job explaining that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I encourage, uh, you know, hopefully this video gets seen by by some people in the Monero community. I'm sure it will. And uh, uh, like you said, I heard you, you've already been in talks with, uh, you know, Ricardo. So, I, you know, I know the Monero community is certainly eager to see uh, Monero on Open Bazaar, so I hope uh, people kind of reach out to you, the developers, and if they could help in any way they can, that would be great. 
Um, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll implement uh, Dash, and that will get you guys. Uh, <laughs> Verge, Verge is probably Verge. Okay, yeah. Well, <laughs> one thing I'll say to your readers, if or your your subscribers, if they're if they have developer chops, we do have regular calls where we invite the community to kind of participate and find out what we're up to and and poke and ask questions. And we have a Slack that we have available. There's lots of channels that we would invite Monero developers to reach out to us so that we can kind of get their coin integrated. I think that there's a an interest in our team to, to see that happen. And uh, if there's if there is anyone that has the case to do that, they should definitely reach out to us. Sounds good. Hopefully they do. So so how anonymous is Open Bazaar? I mean, um and and how anonymous do you see it being in the future? Uh could I, you know, could I effectively go on and buy something anonymously today or sell something anonymously? And uh I know you're you guys are coming out with um I guess basically apps, web apps and apps for you know, native apps for the phone. Will it still be able to maintain its anonymous nature? When that happens, yeah. So, so Open Bazaar is built on kind of this idea of like layered privacy. So it's not like by default you don't get put on the tour or any of that stuff. Like you basically operate as an open node, so your IP address is exposed. Um, if you're running Tor on your computer, or like let's say you're running the Tor browser bundle. Uh, it will recognize that you're doing so and will ask you if you would like to connect to OpenBazaar through Tor. Um, you can also configure it to always use Tor yourself as an opt-in. And in that case, you're you're pretty much pretty anonymous unless you give up your information, you know, willingly through your profile or whatever. Um, there's a very limited set of data that's actually publicly available about any given node on the network. So obviously, if you're selling something, those listings are going to be public because how else are people going to discover it? You also have like a pro public profile. Um, so that's fa uh, reachable. And then also if people write reviews on your products or goods, those, those become um, uh, public. Although you can choose to be anonymously sourced as the, you know, person who wrote the review. So it doesn't always attach you to it. Um, uh, as far as like trades go and like what you're searching for and things like that, I mean, those are not tracked other than what hits the servers. And usually it's, you know, if you're coming from a Tor address, that's what it will see. It's just like you hitting a regular website as a Tor user. Um, so there's nothing really at risk there. Um, the only other thing, at least on the desktop side, that we do is that we ask people if they are willing to contribute um, anonymous uh, analytics which helps us understand more about the app and how people are using it, like whether it crashes or you know, are they searching? Are they, you know, we don't capture like what they're searching for, things like that. It's more like what actions are people taking in general before things crash or whatever. But it's opt-in, so you can uh, you don't have to be a part of that program. But we do have a good considerable amount of people that do choose to do that. Um, on mobile side, obviously we haven't released the mobile app yet, so. Well, let's hope we even get through the App Store reviews. But um, but on that case, um, the the mobile app is actually going to be an OB1 app. And the reason for that is because there are some trade-offs in terms of like uh, centralization and, uh, and, and, and so on because we're trying to uh, make the mobile app experience a little bit more 
mainstream friendly and more consumer uh, oriented rather than the desktop. So you can kind of think of the desktop as like the hardcore, you know, enthusiast is like going to go there, supports everything. You can do kind of wacky configurations, um, no, no holds barred. The mobile app is really aimed at trying to get people to become familiar with crypto, the marketplace, and like really think of it as like their home for private trade online. Um, so, you know, the people that are downloading Brave browser for their phone and using DuckDuckGo for searches and, and Signal for messaging, like those, those kinds of users, we want to give them an, an opportunity to be able to also do commerce in a private way rather than have to use Amazon and then jump back to their privacy apps. You know, there's no real competitor for that in terms of marketplaces. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's what I'm trying to understand. Like who's, who's your market for the, for the apps. Um, but I guess that makes sense. So it's, you know, it's not necessarily that you're, you're using the, what's the app called by the way, the Haven. Yeah. So you're not necessarily using Haven or, you know, to go on and, and buy, you know, what may be considered illegal drugs. Um, but you're using it to preserve your privacy and how you shop. Uh, so, so your data isn't being collected by, you know, some, some third party. Is that, is that kind of a good way to look at it? I mean, is it, you know, it's, it's like, why, why would I use Haven versus using Amazon? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think the the idea is that, you know, if you want to go on and you want to sell something, but you don't want to have to register, you know, register for an account, you don't want to have to attach a credit card. You don't want to have to like give up all your personal information and your customer's information. You want to just be able to, you know, join a marketplace just like eBay or Amazon and do the same kinds of things, but like have that privacy control over your own data. You right. just don't have that unless you're going to set up your own website. And what average, I mean, the reason why people like eBay and Amazon is because they don't have to do all that crap to set up you know, accounts, merchant accounts, do all these things, right? Like it's easy, it's out of the box for them. It, in Haven, you can immediately start selling and offering things and accept crypto. Like within three, four minutes, you have a store running on the marketplace, you're searchable and you have a, a live storefront. I mean, let's not forget that the uh, old uh, banked and banked um, cliche that, you know, we used to talk about sold Bitcoiners, uh, you know, that, that will literally become true. Because the vast majority of people in the world don't don't have a bank account, and uh, you know they also do have consumer mobile phone, most of them anyway. So um, having that sort of access and uh, you know being able to facilitate that kind of trade, I think it's a huge uh, it's a huge deal. Yeah, that's a really good point too that didn't get brought up yet. Um, it, you know, we did a pilot in uh, Buenos Aires uh, in some of the um, like the le- the lesser neighborhoods. In the city, and we wanted them to use Open Bazaar to see, you know, because their currency is being devalued, and we wanted them to be able to sell their goods online and and try and make Bitcoin and see the value of crypto. And what we learned is that nobody owns computers. I mean, it seems kind of obvious, but like nobody has laptops or desktops, right? They just use feature phones or like you know Android phones or whatever, and that's how they live. And if you don't have a mobile app, you're really just like almost invisible there. And so I think by having that mobile app as an option in, in those kinds of countries around the world, it's going to be like a hugely impactful move for them. I mean, you know, there's no limitations on where or how you sell things on OpenBazaar. Like the first day we launched our 2.0 software, we were installed in over 190 countries. I don't think there's any marketplace on the Internet that actually has that kind of, uh, you know, penetration, especially not on a day one. 
right? Like there's just, just too hard logistically to do that. But in our case, it's, it's very easy to do so. What are the stats that you know of? Uh, what do you, what are you guys seeing in terms of usage and downloads and sales? I mean, I, I guess some, some, st- some things you obviously don't have stats on. Yeah. I mean, anything transaction based, we generally don't know anything about, uh, unless, you know, it's anecdotally they're looking for help or, or they disclose it to us. Um, but things we do know are public data. So like, um, number of listings, we know number of listings that are available at any given time, which at this moment is around 13,000 listings. Um, we know how many nodes have joined the network and, and when they show up. So right now, I mean, it kind of fluctuates pretty good amount. So we see anywhere between about 450 and 800 or more nodes a day. Um, we've seen, I think we just hit 150,000 nodes total since 2.0. Those are, um, those are unique nodes. Those are unique wow. nodes on the network. That means they installed the software, got connected, and then we saw them from our uh, search infrastructure. So that's... So the there's com- almost 400 people a day are, are, are spinning up new nodes. Not, not spinning up new nodes, just coming on and connecting to the network. Well, no, that's new nodes. Oh, new nodes. That's new nodes. I apologize. Yeah, that's new nodes. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say how much economic activity is happening on those. I mean, it could be a lot of people just trying to browse the network because we don't really have a way for people to, to browse or just kind of take a, a spin through the network other than .com. So I think, um, you know, that that's going to be something, too, that I think will – will be really enhanced by the mobile app because um, I think merchants are really motivated to download software, configure it, set up their store. They invest the time to try and start their business. Buyers don't really want to go through the same process just to buy something, right? You just go to a website, you purchase and move on. So I think having a mobile app, you know, where you can just quickly search and buy and there's not a huge barrier to entry or even when we get to web, which would be even better, you know, if I could just go to openbazaar.com, for instance, and just buy and just do it, I think for the buyer end of the marketplace, that would be like a much, much, much better experience. So what do you think is really driving it right now? What's uh, what's motivating these these early adopters? Is it just uh, kind of the, the savings in transaction costs and they're not being this middleman or? Well, I mean, I think that there is, there, you know, on the merchant side, there is like a really huge crisis happening on a lot of these marketplaces where people are either getting deplatformed or they're, uh, feel like they're getting screwed by fees or like they're selling things that, you know, you know, the marketplaces don't know how to manage. Uh, for instance, you know, I mean, even mining equipment at one point was ripped off of Amazon and eBay uh, because they weren't sure of the legalities of that. And I mean, imagine your whole business is predicated on selling those types of devices or, or software or books or any of that stuff. I mean, think about the things that are like straight up banned in Saudi Arabia and you can't sell to customers just because, I mean, there's just all kinds of different weird things that are not necessarily illegal or like they're just gray areas that marketplaces don't want to touch. I mean, we have this kind of impending realization that like, for instance, marijuana is going to be legalized, right? Like we, it's like knocking on the door, but for now it's kind of in this weird limbo, right? Like Canada, it's legal, US somewhere it's legal, but not really in the federal, you know? So like how do marketplaces handle it? They just say no, 
they don't even attempt to try and uh, allow people to do that. And so we're hoping, um, sorry, um, that uh, you know users will have the control to decide how that how that operates. You know, like if you're in Colorado and you're selling to people within Colorado, you should have the right to do that. You should be able to choose software that enables your business to exist because it's legal, and uh, they don't have that opportunity. So those are some some interesting cases. I kind of went on a tangent there. I no, that's that's a good answer. Yeah. Do you th do you think so? Like the app. So when when we have this app, do you think people will continue to use it in that way, or they'll be a little scared? Uh, and you know, are we going to see people using it to to sell marijuana on on the you know on the uh, Haven iPhone app, or that might be a kind of a different environment? Well, so I mean, there's a couple things to understand. I mean, one is. Obi-Wan and, and developers and nobody else has the ability to remove anything from the OpenBazaar network. If I download the desktop app and I sell heroin, for instance, like it's there. It's like setting up a website. It just it just exists on the internet. Now the question is like how do people actually get there at some point? Like are they finding it through Google or is Obi-Wan promoting it as something to go and buy? Like, I mean you have to have that discoverability. In the case of the Haven app, um, the primary discovery mechanism is going to be through OB1 search, which we do filter. And so obviously we're not going to be surfacing heroin listings to the top of that marketplace. Does not mean it doesn't exist somewhere in the network. It just means that users are not going to be able to discover that content and actually get to it through any of our tools. Um, so it, it's kind of a weird, you know, it's like, it's kind of odd. It's like the internet, but like you can't find everything through Google, right? Like they do remove things from their index. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist on the internet. It's this very, very close analogy to what's going on with OpenBazaar. That's very interesting. Um, so what, what do you kind of guys see as being next steps? I guess obviously, you know, the app, uh, what, what else is in the, uh, in the pipeline? Yeah. So, I mean, in general for, for us, there's, uh, we have three pillars of, uh, of uh, success. One is the desktop app, obviously. Um, or, sorry, one. Yeah, one is the desktop. One is the mobile. And one is the web. Those are the three areas we're focused on. The the mobile app is very much impending. It's like we're very close to getting that released. We're we're doing testing and, and finishing that up. The web is a little bit further off. Um, we're trying to do something that I think nobody else has really cracked that nut. So when you talk about dApps, generally people are talking about Ethereum dApps, and then they're also talking about basically a thin website that talks to uh, like Infura or some kind of API-based service, and it uses MetaMask as like a wallet. It doesn't, all it is is kind of a thin client to this app logic that exists in a smart contract. In our case, we're actually going to be embedding all of the peer-to-peer -peer networking, the server logic, all that stuff's going to reside within the browser. And so there will be no need to have a plugin or like an install or anything like that. It will just run natively in the browser wherever you are. And that's great because that means none of your data is stored on any of our, you know, anything that we can be looking at. It's all truly decentralized. And that, that is a very hard thing to accomplish with today's technology. Um, we're, we lean heavily on uh, IPFS, which is like a uh, you know distributed peer-to-peer -peer networking and, and data uh, storage network, and uh, you know they're just on the cusp of getting some of this stuff working, and we're working really closely with them to push the envelope here. So I think towards the end of the year we're going to see some really really interesting.
doing things on the web that no one else is really doing. And 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 we're hoping that you know we'll be able to get OpenBazaar in a web experience that feels just like you're working on Amazon rather than some kludgy you know desktop app like a lot of these things are. So um, those are our big focuses and. And then also something we didn't talk about, we do have um, a, a token that we're going to be doing. and We're not doing a sale. We're going to do things a little bit differently than others. We're really using the token as an incentive mechanism. It's like an opt-in. So uh, for instance, merchants will be able to use it to um, power up listings. So if you've ever been on Instagram and like you want to boost your photo and try and get it in front of more people, it's kind of the similar thing. They'll, they'll be able to use the token to to push up their listing. So if you're trying to sell a bicycle or whatever and you want to get it more visible, they'll be able to use that. And then the other function will be we're going to incentivize people to buy and sell. So if you buy anything on Amazon, you can think of it as a rewards point. You'll get rewarded with the token for purchasing. If you sell something, you'll get rewarded. And we're hoping that people will turn around and use that back on the marketplace and it will create like this uh, yeah, rewards engine, uh, decentralized rewards engine, which will be really cool. Yeah, you guys, you guys never did an ICO or anything, right? I mean, and I, you could have been one of the earliest. Yeah, yeah, I know. And our investors remind us at every corner <laughs> that we, we did. But, uh, but no, I mean, I think as the, is the case with everything that we've done, we've always spent a lot of time thinking very hard about like why we do something and and what does it actually contribute back to like our overall goal of Open Bazaar. Like, we're not going to just do something because. We can make a ton of money or we can just do, you know, we can just get people to do it. Like it has to have a purpose in the overall goal of what we're doing. So uh, I, I think we've finally settled on a, a mechanism for how it can be used that we like feel good about. And uh, over the next few months, we're going to be working to like incorporate that in. So what is the funding? Or, or I guess you guys are funded. You have investors. And is there a business model? Like what is the... Uh... What is the business model of Obi-Wan? Yeah, I mean, we are venture-backed. Um, we have a pretty good stable of investors, so we're lucky. They're patient, and they're probably winning in other areas to compensate for us. But, uh, <laughs> no. but I mean, um, realistically, I think they understand that, like, these crypto companies, for the most part, especially ones that are, like, truly trying to do decentralized stuff, are kind of far out from figuring out what is, like, the best business model. Like, you know, for Coinbase, it's obvious, right? Like they're they're a centralized business. They're they're a bridge between the decentralized world and the centralized world, and they're just fee based. It's like all very clear. Um, for a company like ours, where we're trying to remove the middleman, you have to kind of like flip the script a little bit and think like, well, what is like what is the opportunity for for revenue there? Like maybe there isn't. Maybe there is. How is it? Is it through tokens? Is it this? I mean, for us, we're still kind of experimenting with what that's going to be. And I think it's going to look, um, excuse me, more like a hybrid approach. So there'll be some things that we do that look like a traditional business. For instance, the mobile app may have in-app purchases for some things, you know, um, in order to monetize the mobile app. Uh, you know, and then in other cases, it may just be that we're trying to promote the value of the token that we release. And we're holding tokens and, and trying to drive the value of that, that asset up. So it, it it's not super clear exactly what that will be, but um, you know we're trying to figure that out. Hmm. How about things like um, you know uh, Uber and Airbnb? I mean, you guys are basically building this marketplace. Do you envision 
uh, kind of eating into those markets as well. You know, you always hear like, uh, you know, these things may get disrupted by uh, blockchain technology. I mean, if you're if you guys are building this marketplace, can it apply to other other things like you know the Ubers and Airbnbs of the world? Yeah, so I think um, you know, I mean, right now the it's all the rage these services marketplaces marketplaces, right? Like the Uber for whatever, and. I mean, the value proposition there is that they manage the supply and the demand, right? Like, it doesn't matter if, you know, like when somebody comes to pick you up in an Uber, you don't have to think much about who it is that's picking you up other than the rating, right? Like Uber abstracts that all away from you. Um, Open Bazaar would have a hard time doing that at this point, the way it's structured. But I would love to see in the future someone use what we've got as like kind of the underlying architecture for that. Like they could definitely use that as the springboard to build a service like that. And they would have a lot less work to do because the payments there, the discoverability is there, the mechanism for doing the market exchange is all there. You know, they could easily lay layer GPS discoverability, um, you know, something like that on top of it and create kind of a, a user interface that does an Uber. Um, it's hard to say whether that will happen or not. I think that kind of thing happens when you start to get a massive scale on the marketplace and people start wanting to invest time building those services because the audience is there. We're not quite there yet, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what Brian was saying earlier was that we're pre-revenue in because we're putting so much time into building up this infrastructure. Like we're 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 effectively creating a protocol for trade and finding the initial use case is is interesting, you know, and that's part of the the approach that we're taking with Haven is having an actual product that we can start exploring some of those business models. But we fully expect that on the open source side of things, this technology will evolve into an actual trade protocol or a, a toolbox of protocols and languages and libraries that allow and facilitate this private and free trade that you know could work on top of the internet or can work on top of other existing technologies. It should be complementary to the to the landscape of technology. And that being said, I did I did book a taxi in Shanghai through Open Bazaar, so <laughs> it wasn't as real time as Uber, but uh, but you know I mean the seeds of something like that are there, and it's definitely not an impossibility. Yeah, I mean it definitely seems like a market ripe for disruption. I know everybody's you know it's always been mentioned, but. Uh, I mean, the amount of money that the middleman is is taking there is it seems like a big slice of pie. Um, so uh, let, me, let me see what other kind of questions I had here. Talked about the bit. I guess if you guys don't mind, you mind talking about Monero a little bit? I mean, I would love to kind of hear more of your 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 background um, of how each of you guys got into crypto if you don't mind you don't have to develop divulge too much and uh you know like like i said in the beginning of the interview i think there's a, a ton of overlap between kind of like the ethos of of open bazaar and what you guys are doing and building this protocol for trade and obviously monero trying to be digital cash um what do you guys think about monero what do you guys think about digital cash uh, and I would just kind of love to hear you guys, you know, rap on that a little bit. I mean, I'm very different compared to uh, most of my colleagues because I'm, I'm more of a maximalist. So in my opinion, uh, eventually everything will converge into one currency. Uh, but we're just living in a great time where we can experiment with different technology. And whatever is definitely one of the interesting ones because obviously there's a lot of, uh, a lot of difference between it and the Bitcoin and 
uh, anything else, basically. So, I I think you know one of the things that fa one of the things that fascinates me so much about Monero as as a not just as a currency but as a project is just the uniqueness of how it's managed and the motivations of the people involved in the community because you know a lot of people compare and contrast it to Zcash which is you know you have this Zcash foundation and you have this you know Zcash Inc or whatever their company you know Zcash company and you have Zuko and like there's you know all this and then on the Monero side it's like you feel like you don't really know too many of the developers they're, they're pretty you know fairly fairly not like out right. there and you know other than fluffy pony who you know whenever you talk to him he's like look I you know me but I'm not in charge of Monero you know like he's always you know backing away from that characterization and and I think yet somehow things still get done and um and they're doing such fascinating work I mean like just the the things around uh just you know being able to take crypto note and, and ring signatures and then actually getting the multi-sig done, which so many products promise they're going to build something like that and then never do. And they actually delivered. Um, and I remember using Monero very early on and just how crazy complicated it was compared to Bitcoin. Like, I mean, just looking at the, you know, the, I can't even remember what the Explorer was, but like one of those early Monero explorers and it was just like so much on the screen and like, I mean, you couldn't even decipher what the hell was going on. Um, uh, you just assumed that it was more private, I guess, if you weren't like deeply involved. And it's gotten so much better. I mean, I just recently downloaded the My Monero wallet, and I was like, "Damn, this is actually like a really good user-friendly way to use Monero." And um, you know, I just, I just admire the project a lot. Um, I really like Ricardo a lot too. I've had a lot of conversations with him. Um, about what they're doing and I just I, I think it's a project that like I look up to in terms of like sticking to their ideals and like really trying to deliver something differentiating in a marketplace full of crap that just doesn't do anything but tweak a few parameters they're just really going out of the box and doing something different so yeah, I, re I really think that's the key thing here because there are there's so much opportunity in this space for improving how we exchange value back and forth that it's very easy to, to you know, reflip one of these existing coins, change a few things like a color scheme, and then relaunch it and, and, and you know, not follow through on some of the promises that you've made. And I, I believe that in the case with Monero, that there's a lot of longevity in the project and that a lot of the things that have been uh, agreed to, to be improved, they've actually followed through on. So it's, it's definitely one of the projects out there that, uh, earns my respect. Um, my perspective is a lot more utilitarian in nature, however. You know, I, I, I feel as though we have uh, this problem with governance and trying to manage value and transferring value from one person to another. And if you don't believe that the government necessarily is the best person that's handling and governing the, the way that we trade value, then cryptocurrency becomes a lot more interesting to you. And back in 2011, when I first started poking at Bitcoin, I, I could very easily see uh, not just Bitcoin, but cryptocurrency generally being an obvious improvement for how we, you know, change the way that we exchange value back and forth. I mean, much in the same way that we've moved on from rye stones and, and bags of salt, like there, there are limitations to each of these uh, types of um, 
you know, mediums of value, transferring value back and forth. And it's certainly time and ripe for, uh, for changing that and upsetting that. Do you guys think, um, you know, this stuff needs to be private and fungible on the, on the core protocol level or what's, what's your opinion on that? I mean, uh, especially I would love to hear from the Bitcoin maximalist. Um, I mean, Bitcoin has yet to add, you know, uh, certainly isn't, isn't fungible and, it, and it's not private. And it seems there seems to be uh, the meme going around now that it, it doesn't want to become that because uh, it values uh, the fact that it's audible and uh, more than the, you know, more than making it private and fungible for security purposes. So I'd love to hear you guys thought on that. I mean, me obviously i think digital cash needs to be fungible but, oh, uh, oh, the, I mean, the, I, the, the whole it's too difficult to do argument is what you're saying <laughs> i think i think it's probably going to be one of the next major uh debates uh, i don't know if you'll probably um cause another hard fork maybe going down the road but i think we're too early to really say at the moment uh, it really depends on what the uh sort of technical depth uh into introducing that sort of change I mean, will it be taproot? Will it be confidential transactions? Um, it really comes down to uh, how complicated the change is. Uh, but in, in principle, yes, I would definitely want a uh, sort of core layer uh, fungibility aspect to it. Yeah, but it's also good to have a choice as well. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I do worry a little bit about the ability for Bitcoin to change too much. I mean, I think people are starting to get into this idea that like a lot of this stuff needs to happen elsewhere, like different layers or like, you know, grin or like these, these other ideas, um, you know, will it happen in, within Bitcoin? I don't, I don't know. Maybe Bitcoin, you know, like the, I was at Satoshi Roundtable and there were a lot of arguments uh, from people that were saying that like, Oh, you know, grin may overtake Bitcoin as kind of what it, it should have been, you know, it can do lightning, it can do privacy, you can do all these things. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's realistic or not, but I think people want privacy. And, you know, as long as these chain analysis firms, you know, exist that are going to continue to try and learn more and more about what we're doing and they're going to get better and better at it. I mean, they already have, I mean, they're doing things so well already. I can only imagine a couple more years where they're going to be. And so we have to actively be working on adding those privacy things. I don't know if that's going to happen at the core Bitcoin layer. It may happen higher up or, I don't know. I mean, I mean, at the same time, there's some really interesting projects going on with uh, Wasabi Wallet, for example, or uh, what the Samurai guys are doing as well. They're doing a bunch of uh, really um, innovative sort of uh, um, fungibility improving things at, the, at, at that wallet layer. Uh, so they've got Stonewall, for example, on, on uh, Samurai Wallet, which looks pretty cool. Uh, and so that's Wasabi Wallet as well. So um, I mean, at the moment, we'll probably, uh, we can probably win that. <laughs> battle against uh, against chain analysis uh, but it's just um, we'll have to see what happens in the protocol layer yeah I mean I think I think it's going to be a cat and mouse game forever because you know I mean there was a time when we thought that like tumbling coins you know 5,000 times would actually be effective and now the analysis companies like see through that so quickly like they they can see coins going into exchanges and coming out and figure out where they're going based on patterns and stuff and so I think especially with the way machine learning and artificial intelligence all this stuff is going it's only going to get harder to hide from that and but 
your point goes right to like what I'm saying is like maybe this stuff happens at the wallet layer and like we're always innovating there rather than trying to change what Bitcoin is. Like maybe we don't need to. Maybe it is something that we're always doing on the client side. I worry about consistency there. I mean, Samurai Wallet is doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, they have a stealth wallet scheme or stealth address scheme that we were looking at implementing and it was just so complicated. Uh, I'm not sure that they were even doing it properly, but <laughs> I, I don't know. But like, you know, I think it's very cool that people are trying that stuff. And I think we need to have a little bit of like separate, you know, chains that are actually doing stuff baked at the lower levels and trying to figure that out. And there needs to be some exploration at higher levels as well. So, so if technology's history has anything to say about this, we, we see this approach all the time and having different features handled at different layers of the technology. We're still, I mean, for all intents and purposes, 10 years is uh, a long time for technology, but we have to remember that cryptocurrency is still quite young as far as uh, a means of exchanging value or storage of value or, you know, handling tokens, whatever your use case happens to be. And whether or not that privacy happens on the first layer or if it happens, you know, somewhere up the stack, I think that really is dependent on the use case and how important it is. And, you know, for all of the experiments that are going on right now, I wouldn't be surprised that if the, that layer one privacy is really important to you, you'll find a way to transact that way. But if it's not, perhaps Lightning Networks is, is enough. You know, maybe they find some way to do that at the third layer after Lightning gets figured out. But, you know, this is this is a long journey that we have. And, and I'd say from a utilitarian point of view, use the thing that makes sense for your use case if it, if you can, and that's that's kind of why you know open bazaars is important as it is because there aren't enough use cases out there, and having some place to be able to exchange your cryptocurrency in the means that you want to is the key important thing. Very cool. I guess one thing, uh, one last topic uh, we didn't discuss. I'll go back. We'll go back to open bazaar for a second. Um, is just I guess the legalities. Um, you know, obviously it's, you know, you it's decentralized software, but there's kind of that gray area. Um, how are you guys navigating that? And, uh, you know, you know, how, how are you guys covering your asses with that? Is it, is it just that it's, it's this decentralized platform. So it's, you know, uh, whatever happens on open bazaar is kind of out of your, out of your control or what, what, what legal grounds are you guys resting on there? Well, I mean, obviously, we haven't tested any of these in court for any reason. Um, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at this point, the only thing that we're providing is is open source software that people can download and run on their machines. Um, we don't facilitate anything. We don't we don't manage anything. We don't hold funds. We don't we don't really do anything in terms of like making our users do anything or like helping them execute it. It's just, it's just a tool. So that's how we look at it. It's almost like a freedom of speech kind of thing. It's just open source software. Um, now when Haven comes out, you know, obviously that will probably be a little bit different um, just because, you know, we're going to be in the app store and we're going to have to be a little bit more responsible for the stuff that gets displayed through our app. You know, they're, they're much stricter. And so that will be a new challenge. Um, we think we're ready for that. I mean, we've already started to build our search engine to be flexible enough to support filtering and things like that that would be necessary to help us manage that. Um, I mean, we've been approached by the FBI. They ask questions. Um, 
I think that they still haven't fully wrapped their head around what kind of a challenge this type of software would be for them. I don't think that they're particularly worried at this point either, though, because when it look when you look at uh, low hanging fruit in terms of targets, I think there's still so many centralized darknet marketplaces and th things like that that most of the commerce is happening on that they'd rather focus on that. And so I think that this challenge could become much more uh, uh, important if we grew to a much bigger size. But it's definitely some. Uh, it's more severe at at scale. But uh, but at this point, I mean, we're trying to do things that like keep us as much of out of the trade, out of the commerce activities as possible. Not just for legal reasons, but just because you know we want this to truly be decentralized. The more we get involved, you know, the more responsibility, the more actions, the more things we have to like be responsible for. So it's an interesting conversation that's happening right now that's trying to decide whether or not the writer of a smart contract is responsible for the actions of that smart contract after the the writer has published it on the internet. And I think that that's kind of at the, the crux of this, this conversation here. And it's a, it's a very slippery slope because we have decades of software that we've been building upon that has created problems for us, arguably, that has had, you know, real monetary impact, you know, and I'm not just talking about the cryptocurrency faux pas that we've seen. I'm talking about real fiat, big bank faux pas. And, you know, we have, we've set the precedent already that, you know, we've, we've released the developers of that software from those responsibilities, those liabilities. It's the bank's responsibility in some of those cases to ensure that the operation of their software is within the parameters that they expect. Um, you know, is that the same case when you're running on an open source piece of software on a publicly uh, agreed upon uh, ledger? Um, everyone has accepted that this smart contract language is acceptable to, to be executed on your computer, you know, intrinsically by running the software. So, you know, are, are you at, at risk or at fault for, you know, being party to that by just running the software? It's, it gets very complicated. Well, I think this is kind of going back to like the Jerry Brito article, I'm sure included a lot of this, which is that, um, and, and in this case, a lot of discussion between Monero and Zcash and how they contrast. Um, I know that Zuko has gotten a lot of like criticism for the way that he's approached privacy, whereas there's this whole like um, view key kind of thing where you give the government the ability to look at your transactions if you want, but it's like an opt-in kind of thing. You know, I... I don't know. Is that is that the way that you get out of this? I mean, does Open Bazaar have the ability for people to, you know, come, you know, to like basically give the like a break the glass kind of thing mm -hmm. where you know most cases is private, but like if there's an emergency, then they can see something. I mean, like is that acceptable? I don't know. I think those things are going to get tested in the future, and like we're going to find out what the legalities are. But it, as far as I understand, you know that that that. Uh, the statement that came out or whatever that talking about smart contracts, I, I think it was a little overreaching, but I think the idea was if you're creating smart contracts whose sole goal is to try and circumvent law, are this are the writers uh, at, at risk, right? Like if I create a, a smart contract in order to facilitate illegal gambling, I mean, and that's its only real use, mm -hmm. I mean, you're creating a utility, you're facilitating the action, you know, illegal activity. But if we're creating a smart contract that enables people to do 
broad commerce online, that may encompass that, that huge Venn diagram may, you know, have overlap with drugs, but it's not meant, it's not a, it's not a drug tool per se. And so I think that, you know, the way that we're building this marketplace is it's a tool to facilitate privacy and in, in commerce, not, not to facilitate illegal activity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really comes down to, uh, is code covered by uh, free speech? Is it free speech? Is writing code free speech? Um, if it's not, then I guess, you know, we'll have to sort of end your life. I don't think there's really any laws that uh, say that it's not, so. I mean, and, and that's different all around the world though, too. You know, like here it's been tested and like, yeah, code is free speech, but you know, laws change. Uh, there's other things in other parts of the world. You know, like if we put out software that gets people in jail because it's breaking the law, I mean, that's like an issue for our users as well. So um, yeah, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of concerns there. Is So is Open Bazaar at the point where it is kind of uh, its own decentralized beast? I mean, obviously like Bitcoin, if it was decided tomorrow that it was illegal, uh, the whole point is it would be almost impossible to shut it down, uh, no matter what the law is. Uh, has will Open Bazaar reach that point? Has it reached that point where it would be very difficult to to stop it? Um, I think that I probably wouldn't argue that it's like fully resilient, like a cockroach in in a nuclear war. But I do think that, like you know, for instance. The source code would probably get obliterated from GitHub. So how would users get it? I mean, but then you argue there's thousands of people that have the source code and could put it somewhere else and like continue going. And then there are people that already have the software installed and they could just continue operating as is. Um, we do have like seed nodes. I mean, Bitcoin's no different, right? Like you have to have a way to bootstrap onto the network. If those nodes go away, uh, how do people get on the network? Well, it wouldn't be easy, but they could find other people to bootstrap and get on. So, yeah, there are a lot of ways that, like, theoretically, it would be resilient. In other ways, practically, probably would be hard for it to survive, you know? So, yes and no, but I think for the most part, there's not a lot of ways that they could, like, obliterate Open Bazaar, like, overnight. Like, Silk Road, like, they turn the servers off, they close out, the, they, you know, recapture the domain name, and it's gone forever. I mean, just to be gone. You know that 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 can't happen with Open Bazaar. Um, I mean, arguably, it goes back to the whole free speech thing, right? Once you have the genie out of the bottle, it's just very difficult to just put it back. Because once once Bitcoin's white paper was released in two thousand eight, it was already too late. There was really nothing that no jurisdiction could really do to uh, to stop the idea. It's just an idea ultimately. So um, the moment that someone created uh, permissionless uh, money, that was already it. Yep, it's true. Well, uh, I'm a big believer, and uh, I think you guys are doing good, good work, positive work, ethical work. Uh, you guys are on the right side of history. Uh, you're built. You're simply building a tool. You're building a protocol for trade, which is a, a nice way of describing it. The way you guys have been describing it, and uh, I think ultimately, if if in balance, humanity is is better than it is worse. Then when you build tools like these then you know good things will come will ultimately come from them and the good's going to outweigh the bad and uh you know thank thanks for working on the project uh i wish you guys uh you know luck in your in your venture 
Uh, like I said, Brian, I, I was following you from the early days, and I'm impressed about uh, how far you guys have taken it so far. Um, and uh, yeah, I really hope that Monero could uh, be added and the Monero community could help you guys in whatever way you need to uh, kind of make that happen. Well, thank you so much for having us and appreciate your support. And uh, yeah, we feel the same way about Monero. So <laughs> hopefully we can close the door. And uh, next next year I can uh, go to Satoshi Roundtable and uh, Ricardo will have to buy me some drinks with his uh, pumped price. From <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having us. Thanks. All right. Good night.